Lord Jesus, we do come to seek you. We invite you, Lord, to make all things new, even in us, even in our hearts this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us, as your people, how to speak you in the language of our people, to speak you and your life and your truth into the communities that you've called us to. Lord, open my lips that my mouth would proclaim your praise. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. To be God's gospel presence in a gospel-deficient area is to speak God into the language of people. The great 19th century American preacher, Episcopal Bishop Phillips Brooks, taught younger preachers that good preaching is truth conveyed through personality. Truth conveyed through personality. He said all the you know, eloquence and wit and, um, you know, just the winsomeness, all of it in the world is worthless if the message you preach is not grounded in the truth of God, in the truth of God's word. But at the same time, truth without personality will reduce the gospel, which is the most exciting message in the history of the world, will reduce it to sort of a dry uh, didactic topic And it will actually become an impediment to people hearing and and being able to apprehend and sometimes even receive that good news. But God longs to be spoken into the language of people, into the language of our time, into the language of our communities. We actually are reminded of this each and every Sunday. This is why at the gospel reading, the gospel book is actually processed down and read from in the midst of the people. A reminder that this is what our God does. He has come down and to, to be spoken of and to be spoken into our midst. Well, as we come to the latter half of chapter 17 of the book of Acts, and as we continue on our journey, uh, if you're just joining us this morning, we've been uh, walking through the book of Acts and we've been seeing the way God uses his people to become, as I've already spoken of, his gospel presence in the midst of gospel-deficient areas. We encounter Paul in chapter 17 doing this very work of speaking God into the specific language of the people he encounters in the Greek city of Athens. We encounter Paul conveying truth through personality. So, and feel free to to say it with me if you have your Bibles turn with me to Acts chapter 17 and beginning in verse 16 and we'll explore together the way St. Paul speaks God into the language of the Athenians first we encounter St. Paul's word before we encounter St. Paul's words we encounter actually something about his motives so we read this in verse 16 Now Paul, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy, whom he had sent for. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him 
as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, as a devout Jew, idolatry was something that was literally anathema to St. Paul. And as a Jewish follower of Jesus, that was probably really only intensified, actually. Because there is one God, almighty creator of heaven and earth, who abhorred, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, he talks about how much he abhorred idolatry. And there was one Lord, Jesus Christ, his son. That is the bedrock foundation of biblical faith. And so seeing all of the Greco-Roman temples and idols about, Paul probably felt sort of a spiritual oppression about the place. But the Greek word used here, paroxuneto, literally means to be provoked to wrath. He was provoked to wrath. So this is not just a, wow, this is kind of weird. Or, uh, you know, I'm mildly disturbed by what I'm seeing here, but this is Paul beside himself with a barely contained fury. That is a fascinating response, isn't it? Remember when I was back in college for one of my missions classes, actually, we had uh, an actual field trip. I was pretty excited because to my knowledge, I believe that was the only field trip I actually had in college. But anyway, we had a field trip. And we went to a Hindu temple instead of going to church on a Sunday morning, actually. We went to a Hindu temple. And I remember feeling kind of a a dark, I mean, the the space was physically dark, and and it just sort of spoke to me of sort of a a dark physical, uh, I mean, spiritual presence that I did not enjoy. But it certainly did not provoke me to fury. I mean, as a student of cultures, I actually found it very fascinating to be in that place, And I definitely felt a pang of sadness for some people that I saw really, you know, pouring uh, offerings and pouring themselves out before these idols that I, you know, knew from my biblical faith could not hear them, right? But I wasn't angry by any means. So what is Paul's deal? Well, I would submit that Paul was incensed by the exploitation, the injustice and frankly, the profiteering of the Greco-Roman temple system. You see, the temples of that day were a combination of brothel, fortune teller, and all the worst parts of TV televangelists, you know, scamming, you know, just, just send in your money and, right? If you wanted to get ahead in life, visit this particular temple, pay the fee to the, the priests there, Right? lay down several drachma, make some kind of a sacrifice, and go away with the promise that it will now go well with you, as long as you don't screw it up, right? If you wanted, you could even participate in fertility rituals, which, yes, is a euphemism. You know, fertility rituals for your farm or your wife, which, of course, included the exploitation of young women who were, frankly, sex slaves in these temples, There were all sorts of debased corruptions going on. But what was even more disturbing was it was all done in the name of deities whose help was promised. And Paul looked on it all and saw the lie for what it was. He knew well the words of Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold. 
the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. There is nothing in this idolatry but death and corruption. That is what set Paul off. The selling of a lie. Would that the people of God took so seriously the injustice, the lies that so many men and women all around us have bought into. And that we too burned, not with anger against men and women. There's enough of that going around today. Let's not participate in that. But that we burned with a passion against lies and deception and the injustice of the corrupt systems of thought and all forms of oppression that dominate our culture. Starting first with the lies and the deceptions that we have imbibed ourselves. Even as we sang this morning in that wonderful new song that Nathan introduced. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lonely heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. Not holy war against others, against other faiths. Holy war within. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. That's where it starts. Well, Paul recognizes that simply to seethe with anger over these things is not enough. So he gets on his blog and on Facebook and he starts lobbing grenades at people and publicly calling them out and shaming them. Whoops, nope, that's, that's not what it says. Just maybe that isn't the most effective way to move forward. Rather than attack individuals or openly try to shame them, what does Paul do? Well, look in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he started where he always did, with the people that would most likely hear and respond to his message, his fellow Jews and those who had already placed their faith in the one true God, these devout Greeks. But then he does something more that he had not done in any of the other places he had gone yet. He went to the Agora, the marketplace, which was also a, a sort of town square. Now again, this doesn't mean that he walked into the middle of the town, jumped up on top of an, a donkey cart and started preaching, you know, repent or you're going to hell. We have to understand and appreciate the context of first century Athens. Athens was, of course, an ancient center of culture and philosophy all the way back to the 5th century B.C. with Socrates and, and, and uh, Plato and Aristotle. And by the 1st century, Roman Athens, they had tried their best to hold on to some of that and, and actually to revive in Greco-Roman culture this great academic, philosophical, cultural tradition. But what that actually looked like was a lot of unoriginal, would-be academics trying to come up with some new idea. That's kind of what it looked like in first century Athens. St. Luke tells us, actually, in verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. So understand, what Paul is doing here is actually not weird. 
his engaging in the cultural dialogue of the open-air market, something that everybody there was already doing. And because people in Athens were so interested and open to hearing new things, this actually wins him an invite to speak to a larger audience, as it were. Back up to verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler say? Others said, he seems to be preaching a foreign divinity because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and he brought them, and they brought him rather, to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. See, Paul doesn't go in with fire and brimstone looking weird, condemning people to hell in the street. He simply tries to enter into a conversation that was already going on. But then he was quite clear in his message. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. These two pieces are critical for us to recover in our own interface as believers with those around us today. Especially if we too are going to speak God into the language of our culture. We need to meet people where they are at. We don't need to take to the blogosphere and social media and try to shout down opposing voices. We don't need to jump up in the middle of a public place and condemn people. We need to engage with the people of our community in the places, both physically and metaphorically, meet people in the places where they are at. But then, we also need to be ready to speak Jesus to them. The text helpfully goes on and gives us a really clear picture of what that looks like. As Paul goes to the Areopagus, the rock of Ares, which is still there, a rock outcropping at the foot of the Acropolis, used at that time as a place for public debates. And we read that being invited to speak to this debating club, St. Paul says, quote, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." St. Paul starts by finding common ground. His message is perceived as a religious teaching. And of course, Paul, if you pushed him on it, would say, oh, it's so much more than that. This is all-encompassing way of life. But fine, you want to kind of put it into this pigeonhole of a religious teaching? I can go there. We can do that. I can work with that. He takes what he finds, and he decides to go ahead and start there. You want to hear about this new religious teaching? 
I'll start with what I observe about your own religious environment. Clearly, you're a religious lot. I can't walk anywhere without tripping over a religious article of yours. Notice, by the way, he doesn't even use the derogatory term of idol. He says the objects of your worship. He actually treats them with respect. But then he goes on. You are so religious, clearly you want to make sure you have all your bases covered to the point that I even saw something interesting. An altar inscribed to Agnostotheo, the agnostic God, the unknown God. And in that, Paul sees an opening to the conversation. You clearly want to worship the truth, so much so that you felt you had to pull sort of an agnostic punt. I want to tell you, I know the God you're seeking. Let me tell you about him. And so he proclaims the God of Scripture, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth to them. He even briefly walks through the whole of human history and God's relationship to human beings. But he doesn't just start with some of their own thoughts and then ram them into a Christian mold either. He ends with the words of Epimenides of Crete. In him we live and move and have our being. And Erotus the poet's words, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul looks for the places where Greek culture itself affirms the truth because all truth is God's truth, no matter its source, because it all comes from one source, if it is true. To proclaim Jesus doesn't mean we have to take on an antagonistic stance against everything that isn't explicitly Christian. In the adult formation class, I've shared a couple of times about my dialogues with one of my good friends in high school, a young man named Jay. Our senior year, we really connected over philosophy and religion. We actually took a guitar class together where we mostly spent our time talking about philosophy and religion because he had come to embrace Taoism and really was excited about that and pressing deeper and deeper into that. And we would find that we'd have these dialogues and I would ask him, well, tell me, what what do you find compelling in that? And time after time, I found myself genuinely saying, you know, I really see that. that, I I see you really pursuing truth in that. Let me tell you, I have found that same truth. I've just found it in Jesus. We had great conversations marked by mutual respect and even admiration for one another. We took our dates to prom together and that kind of thing. And I shared the good news of Jesus with him very explicitly, yet very uh, respectfully, always affirming the common ground that we both shared. That's what it looks like to speak God into the language of our world, into our community. And so finally, in verse 32, we encounter the response to Paul's message. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Friends, sometimes as believers, we just need to get over our need to be liked. 
There are people in our community, some of us might even know people in our lives who think we are just flat crazy because we believe. And, now I know, I get it, nobody likes to be thought less of. Certainly nobody likes to be openly derided. But remember the attitude of the early Christian followers who saw it as a badge of honor when they were worthy to be persecuted for the sake of the name of Christ. St. Paul will say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians that the church's preaching of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Not everybody is going to buy it. Some may even ridicule and deride us for it. And that's okay. As long as we aren't leaving room for them to ridicule and deride our conduct, our way of living, or our proclaiming the cross and resurrection, it's okay. As we used to say in seminary, the gospel offends, we don't need to help it. So if somebody takes offense, the first question I need to be asking is, was it the gospel that they're offended at or was it me? Because if it's me, that's a problem that I need to correct. If it's the gospel, that's between them and God. But others will find their way to God through us. Some of the men of the Areopagus, like Dionysius, believed and became followers of Jesus and followed Paul to learn more. Others, too, came to believe, probably through the testimony of these men who had heard. Because we're told that Damaris, a woman, and others with her came to believe. Women were not allowed to attend the proceedings at the Areopagus. So clearly, somebody else told her about what they had heard, and she followed and believed as well. But the point is, these found life, the answer to their religious longings in Jesus. I remember when we started out this whole church planting venture, it, found, it seems funny to admit this, but I, you know, I, I found that I had been so surrounded for so long with people who have believed for so long, you know, first at a Christian college and then in seminary, that it almost took me by surprise the first time someone came to faith for the first time in our midst. Like, oh, right, that still happens. It's exciting. It was a strange aha reminder moment. Oh, right, not everyone grows up believing and making a profession of faith at the age of five, as I did. And we need to expect that people are going to come to faith through us. We need to expect it, people of God, because it happens. No, we aren't going to have opportunities with everyone the way Paul did. And of those we do have the opportunity to connect with, not all will believe. But we can and should expect that some people are going to encounter Jesus and respond to him with and through us. It is a discipline to maintain that kind of expectant openness. But that too is a part of the hope that we proclaim, that the Lord still wants to use his people to speak his truth, to be his gospel presence in gospel deficient areas, to speak him into the language of people around us who will find him and respond to him. And as we do so, some are going to encounter him and respond.
expect it. Lord, help us to rekindle, to recapture and maintain that expectation. But let's not forget also the ones on the fence. Some derided and mocked, some believed, but quite a few said, we will hear you again about this. In other words, we're curious, we'd like to hear more. We aren't shutting you down, but neither are we ready to to come and, and, and be with you. Friends, the church, and and I have to own this as a son of the evangelical movement within her, has got to learn to be okay with the long view. We've got to learn to be okay with process. The gradual drawing near. Not everyone has a dramatic response to Jesus like St. Paul did, getting knocked off of a horse on the way to Damascus, right? Not everybody is like St. Francis with an icon speaking to him and saying, come follow me, right? In fact, studies have been done which would indicate that most of us came to faith rather gradually. We need to be okay with people responding the way they are going to respond. The church needs to be a safe space for people to be at all different points on the continuum of faith. Because God is a lot more patient than we are oftentimes. So we need to get over our impatience and allow men and women to walk with us and process with us on the road that leads to faith, which takes a certain measure, frankly, of humility. A recognition that just because we are further along that road doesn't mean that we have it all together. We need to get over the possibility of mocking derision. We need to be expectant that some will come to faith and believe, and we need to be okay with others who are still processing because the results aren't up to us. All we're called to is faithfulness. The results are not up to us. All we are called to is faithfulness and a commitment to speak Jesus into our context, to speak God into the language of our communities, to convey truth through our own personalities, flawed as they may be. And the rest is up to him. Let's pray. And Lord, we do look expectantly to you, that you are at work, that you have not left even the searching without a witness. but that you are patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance and transformation. Jesus, the joy of longing hearts. We entrust ourselves, the mission of this church, the mission of your church throughout the world to you. Asking that we would simply be faithful. That through our own flawed, quirky, sometimes unhelpful personalities, that we would speak you and your truth to the people around us as you give us opportunity. So Lord, it's to you that we pray. 
our Lord and our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.